Part First of Nostromo by Joseph Conrad The Silver of the Mine, Chapter 5 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan Part First, The Silver of the Mine, Chapter 5 In this way only was the power of the local authorities vindicated amongst the great body of strong-limbed foreigners who dug the earth, blasted the rocks, drove the engines for the progressive and patriotic undertaking. In these very words, eighteen months before, the excellentissimo Signor Don Vincente Ribiera, the dictator of Costaguana, had described the National Central Railway in his great speech at the turning of the first sod. He had come on purpose to Sulaco, and there was a one o'clock dinner party, a convite offered by the OSN company on board the Juno after the function on shore. Captain Mitchell had himself steered the cargo lighter, all draped with flags, which, in tow of the Juno's steam launch, took the Excellentissimo from the jetty to the ship. Everybody of note in Sulaco had been invited. The one or two foreign merchants, all the representatives of the old Spanish families then in town, the great owners of the estates on the plain, grave, courteous, simple men, caballeros of pure descent, with small hands and feet, conservative, hospitable and kind. The Occidental province was their stronghold. Their Blanco party had triumphed now. It was their presidential dictator, a Blanco of the Blancos, who sat smiling urbanely between the representatives of two friendly foreign powers. They had come with him from Santa Marta to countenance by their presence the enterprise in which the capital of their countries was engaged. The only lady of that company was Mrs Gould, the wife of Don Carlos, the administrator of the San Tome silver mine. The ladies of Salaco were not advanced enough to take part in the public life to that extent. They had come out strongly at the great ball at the Intendencia the evening before, but Mrs Gould alone had appeared, a bright spot in the group of black coats behind the President Dictator, on the crimson cloth-covered stage erected under a shady tree on the shore of the harbour, where the ceremony of turning the first sod had taken place. She had come off in the cargo lighter, full of notabilities, sitting under the flutter of gay flags, in the place of honour by the side of Captain Mitchell, who steered, and her clear dress gave the only truly festive note to the sombre gathering in the long, gorgeous saloon of the Juno. The head of the chairman of the railway board, from London, handsome and pale in a silvery mist of white hair and clipped beard, hovered near her shoulder, attentive, smiling and fatigued. The journey from London to Santa Marta in mailboats and the special carriages of the Santa Marta coastline the only railway so far, had been tolerable, even pleasant, quite tolerable. But the trip over the mountains to Salaco was another sort of experience, in an old diligencia over impassable roads skirting awful precipices. We have been upset twice in one day on the brink of very deep ravines, he was telling Mrs Gould in an undertone, and when we arrived here at last I don't know what we should have done without your hospitality. What an out-of-the-way place Sulaco is, and for a harbour, too, astonishing. 
Ah, but we are very proud of it. It used to be historically important. The highest ecclesiastical court for two viceroyalties sat here in the olden times, she instructed him with animation. I am impressed. I didn't mean to be disparaging. You seem very patriotic. The place is lovable, if only by its situation. Perhaps you don't know what an old resident I am. How old, I wonder, he murmured, looking at her with a slight smile. Mrs. Gould's appearance was made youthful by the mobile intelligence of her face. We can't give you your ecclesiastical court back again, but you shall have more steamers, a railway, a telegraph cable, a future in the great world which is worth infinitely more than any amount of ecclesiastical past. You shall be brought in touch with something far greater than two vice-royalties. But I had no notion that a place on a sea-coast could remain so isolated from the world. If it had been a thousand miles inland now, most remarkable. Has anything ever happened here for a hundred years before today? While he talked in a slow, humorous tone, she kept her little smile. Agreeing, ironically, she assured him that certainly not, nothing ever happened in Sulaco. Even the revolutions, of which there had been two in her time, had respected the repose of the place. Their course ran in the more populous southern parts of the Republic, and the great valley of Santa Marta, which was like one great battlefield of the parties, with the possession of the capital for a prize and an outlet to another ocean. They were more advanced over there. Here in Sulaco they heard only the echoes of these great questions, and, of course, their official world changed each time, coming to them over their rampart of mountains, which he himself had traversed in an old diligentia with such a risk to life and limb. The chairman of the railway had been enjoying her hospitality for several days, and he was really grateful for it. It was only since he had left Santa Marta that he had utterly lost touch with the feeling of European life on the background of his exotic surroundings. In the capital he had been the guest of the legation, and had been kept busy negotiating with the members of Don Vicente's government, cultured men, men to whom the conditions of civilised business were not unknown. What concerned him most of the time was the acquisition of land for the railway. In the Santa Marta Valley, where there was already one line in existence, the people were tractable, and it was only a matter of price. A commission had been nominated to fix the values, and the difficulty resolved itself into the judicious influencing of the commissioners. But in Sulaco, the Occidental province for whose very development the railway was intended, there had been trouble. It had been lying for ages, ensconced behind its natural barriers, repelling modern enterprise by the precipices of its mountain range, by its shallow harbour opening into the everlasting calms of a gulf full of clouds, by the benighted state of mind of the owners of its fertile territory, all these aristocratic old Spanish families, all those Don Ambrosios this and Don Fernandos that, who seemed actually to dislike and distrust the coming of the railway over their lands. It had happened that some of the surveying parties scattered all over the province had been warned off with threats of violence. In other cases, outrageous pretensions as to price had been raised. But the man of railways prided himself on being equal to every emergency. 
since he was met by the inimical sentiment of blind conservatism in Sulaco, he would meet it by sentiment too, before taking his stand on his right alone. The government was bound to carry out its part of the contract with the board of the new railway company, even if it had to use force for the purpose. But he desired nothing less than an armed disturbance in the smooth working of his plans, they were much too vast and far-reaching, and too promising to leave a stone unturned. And so he imagined to get the President Dictator over there on a tour of ceremonies and speeches, culminating in a great function at the turning of the first sod by the harbour shore. After all, he was their own creature, that Don Vincente. He was the embodied triumph of the best elements in the state. These were facts, and unless facts meant nothing, Sir John argued to himself, such a man's influence must be real, and his personal action would produce the conciliatory effect he required. He had succeeded in arranging the trip with the help of a very clever advocate who was known in Santa Marta as the agent of the Gould Silver Mine, the biggest thing in Sulaco, and even in the whole republic. It was, indeed, a fabulously rich mine. Its so-called agent, evidently a man of culture and ability, seemed without official position to possess an extraordinary influence in the highest government spheres. He was able to assure Sir John that the President Dictator would make the journey. He regretted, however, in the course of the same conversation, that General Montero insisted upon going too. General Montero, whom the beginning of the struggle had found an obscure army captain employed on the wild eastern frontier of the state, had thrown in his lot with the Ribiera party at a moment when special circumstances had given that small adhesion a fortuitous importance. The fortunes of war served him marvellously, and the victory of Rio Seco, after a day of desperate fighting, put a seal to his success. At the end he emerged general, minister of war, and the military head of the Blanco party, although there was nothing aristocratic in his descent. Indeed, it was said that he and his brother, orphans, had been brought up by the munificence of a famous European traveller, in whose servants their father had lost his life. Another story was that their father had been nothing but a charcoal burner in the woods, and their mother a baptised Indian woman from the far interior. However that might be, the Costaguana press was in the habit of styling Montero's forest march from his commandancia to join the Blanco forces at the beginning of the Troubles the most heroic military exploit of modern times. About the same time, too, his brother had turned up from Europe, where he had gone, apparently, as secretary to a consul. Having, however, collected a small band of outlaws, he showed some talent as guerrilla chief and had been rewarded at the pacification by the post of military commandant of the capital. The minister of war then accompanied the dictator. The board of the OSN company, working hand in hand with the railway people for the good of the republic, had on this important occasion instructed Captain Mitchell to put the mailboat Juno at the disposal of the distinguished party. Don Vincente, journeying south from Santa Marta, had embarked at Caita, the principal port of Costaguana, and came to Sulaco by sea. 
but the chairman of the railway company had courageously crossed the mountains in a ramshackle diligentia, mainly for the purpose of meeting his engineer-in-chief engaged in the final survey of the road. For all the indifference of a man of affairs to nature, whose hostility can always be overcome by the resources of finance, he could not help being impressed by his surroundings during his halt at the surveying camp established at the highest point his railway was to reach. He spent the night there, arriving just too late to see the last dying glow of sunlight upon the snowy flank of Higurata. Pillared masses of black basalt framed like an open portal, a portion of the white field lying aslant against the west. In the transparent air of the high altitudes everything seemed very near, steeped in a clear stillness as in an imponderable liquid and with his ear ready to catch the first sound of the expected diligentia, the engineer-in-chief, at the door of a hut of rough stones, had contemplated the changing hues on the enormous side of the mountain, thinking that in this sight, as in a piece of inspired music, there could be found together the utmost delicacy of shaded expression and a stupendous magnificence of effect. Sir John arrived too late to hear the magnificent and inaudible strain sung by the sunset amongst the high peaks of the Sierra. It had sung itself out into the breathless pause of deep dusk before, climbing down the forewheel of the diligentia with stiff limbs, he shook hands with the engineer. They gave him his dinner in a stone hut like a cubicle boulder with no door or windows in its two openings. A bright fire of sticks brought on muleback from the first valley below, burning outside, sent in a wavering glare, and two candles in tin candlesticks, lighted, it was explained to him, in his honour, stood on a sort of rough camp table at which he sat on the right hand of the chief. He knew how to be amiable, and the young men of the engineering staff, for whom the surveying of the railway track had the glamour of the first steps on the path of life, sat there too, listening modestly, with their smooth faces tanned by the weather, and very pleased to witness so much affability in so great a man. Afterwards, late at night, pacing to and fro outside, he had a long talk with his chief engineer. He knew him well of old, this was not the first undertaking in which their gifts, as elementally different as fire and water, had worked in conjunction. From the contact of these two personalities, who had not the same vision of the world, there was generated a power for the world's service, a subtle force that could set in motion mighty machines, men's muscles, and awaken also in human breast an unbounded devotion to the task. Of the young fellows at the table to whom the survey of the track was like the tracing of the path of life, more than one would be called to meet death before the work was done. But the work would be done. The force would be almost as strong as faith. Not quite, however. In the silence of the sleeping camp upon the moonlit plateau forming the top of the pass like the floor of a vast arena surrounded by the basalt walls of precipices, Two strolling figures in thick ulsters stood still, and the voice of the engineer pronounced distinctly the words, We can't move mountains. Sir John, raising his head to follow the pointing gesture, felt the full force of the words. 
the white Higerata soared out of the shadows of rock and earth like a frozen bubble under the moon. All was still, till nearby, behind the wall of a corral for the camp animals, built roughly of loose stones in the form of a circle, a packed mule stamped his forefoot and blew heavily twice. The engineer-in-chief had used the phrase in answer to the chairman's tentative suggestion that the tracing of the line could, perhaps, be altered in deference to the prejudices of the Sulaco landowners. The chief engineer believed that the obstinacy of men was the lesser obstacle. Moreover, to combat that, they had the great influence of Charles Gould, whereas tunnelling under Higerotta would have been a colossal undertaking. Ah, yes, Gould. What sort of man is he? Sir John had heard much of Charles Gould in Santa Marta and wanted to know more. The engineer-in-chief assured him that the administrator of the San Tome silver mine had an immense influence over all these Spanish dons. He had also one of the best houses in Sulaco, and the Gould hospitality was beyond all praise. They received me as if they had known me for years, he said, the little lady as kindness personified. I stayed with them for a month. He helped me to organise the surveying parties. His practical ownership of the San Tome silver mine gives him a special position. He seems to have the ear of every provincial authority, apparently, and, as I said, he can wind all the hidalgos of the province round his little finger. If you follow his advice, the difficulties will fall away because he wants the railway. Of course, you must be careful in what you say. He's English, and besides, he must be immensely wealthy. The Holroyd house is in with him in that mine, so you may imagine... He interrupted himself as, from before one of the little fires burning outside the low wall of the corral, arose the figure of a man wrapped in a poncho up to the neck. The saddle which he had been using for a pillow made a dark patch on the ground against the red glow of embers. "'I shall see Holroyd myself on my way back through the States,' said Sir John. "'I've ascertained that he, too, wants the railway.' The man, who, perhaps disturbed by the proximity of the voices, had arisen from the ground, struck a match to light a cigarette. The flame showed a bronzed, black-whiskered face, a pair of eyes gazing straight, then rearranging his wrappings, he sank full length and laid his head again on the saddle. "'That's our campmaster, whom I must send back to Salaco. now we are going to carry our survey into the Santa Marta Valley,' said the engineer." A most useful fellow lent to me by Captain Mitchell of the OSN Company. It was very good of Mitchell. Charles Gould told me I couldn't do better than take advantage of the offer. He seemed to know how to rule all these muleteers and peons. We had not the slightest trouble with our people. He shall escort your diligentsia right into Sulaco with some of our railway peons. The road is bad. To have him at hand may save you an upset or two. He promised me to take care of your person all the way down, as if you were his father. This campmaster was the Italian sailor whom all the Europeans in Salaco, following Captain Mitchell's mispronunciation, were in the habit of calling Nostromo. And, indeed, taciturn and ready, he did take excellent care of his charge at the bad parts of the road, as Sir John himself acknowledged to Mrs Gould afterwards. End of Part First The Silver of the Mine Chapter 5